Well, good morning. Good to see you. Man, school starts this week. I don't know, as Alan said, I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, some of you are excited about that. I, you know what I thought? I thought it would be fun if in the offering today, some of you went to Dude Perfect last night, if you threw your offering and see if they could catch it in the basket. Just to, just to give a trick shot on there. No, we better not. I've always thought we should do the offering where you reach into the pocket of the person in front of you and give as you, how you always wanted to give kind of thing. I'm letting the guys kind of finish there just a second. But uh, glad, that you're, glad that you're here today. I pray that uh, it's a blessing. Let me tell you our approach to every time we gather. And, and you may think, well, Mark, you, you shoot too high sometimes. Every time we gather in worship, I, I just believe that we come to exalt Jesus. And I believe that when he is exalted, you see, it's an audience of one. You, you think you're the audience. You're not the audience. See, it's him alone. We, we worship him. We praise him. We exalt him. So every time we meet, I have this incredible, crazy thought that God wants to do miraculous, transforming life things. Isn't that weird of me? I think that that's the kind of God we serve. And I, I really believe that every time we gather. So... Uh, Saturday nights are restless with me, man. They're just uh, just so restless because I'm wrestling. To get, I, I don't want to waste your time. I want to make sure God just speaks uh, to your heart and life today. So I'm so glad that you're here. Hopefully you brought your Bible. We'll be in it in just a minute and uh, and deal with that. But let me give you something to get you started today. There was a <clears throat> there was a couple and they had twin boys. And these boys, uh, you know, you raise them the same, you raise them in the house the same, same culture, same environment. But uh, the boys, these two boys were really different. One of them was just super pessimistic, uh, almost to the point of depression all the time. He was, he struggled with, uh, you know, the glass was empty, not, not half full or half empty. It was empty for him. And then they, the other twin just so happened he was, the cup's overflowing. Everything's optimistic. Everything is, is uh, you know, just going all the time. He, he thinks great thoughts. This one's struggling over here. So as the boys got older, they decided to take them to a psychiatrist for some counseling. So they take the boys into the psychiatrist. Psychiatrist hears from the, the young man that's always pessimistic, hears from the optimistic one, and then he calls the parents in. He said, I've got this idea I think will work fine says, what you do is you take the young man that is always pessimistic and you go to his room and you just fill it with toys and gadgets that he loves. And he said, I really believe that it will bring him out. And so they do the room and uh, there's all these gadgets and toys that you would think any boy would want. And pretty soon he ran out of the room crying. And uh, the psychiatrist thought, man, what in the world happened? So they asked the little boy, what's the big deal? And he said, he said, all those toys, those new toys and new gadgets and everything, he said, they're great, but I'm afraid I would break all of them. And so that was his pessimistic thought on that. Well, then the psychiatrist said, okay, if we can't bring him up, maybe we can bring the other one down and they'll balance each other a little bit in what's going on. So here's what you do with the, uh, with the other son who is always optimistic. So what I want you to do is I want you to take this big uh, heaping pile of manure and put it uh, outside right where it's at and tell him you have a surprise for him and he's going to come out here and that's what the surprise is going to be. So it'll probably bring him down to balance everything out. 
And they said, OK, we'll do that. So they got the big pile of, of manure there. And uh, they said, we got a surprise for you. And they opened the door and, and he sees what's in front of him. And he runs and he jumps right on top of the pile and he just starts digging in it and everything. And they thought, oh, no, we've blown it. So they asked him, what, what's the deal? What, why are you so excited about this? He said, well, this pile of manure, I know there's got to be a pony in there somewhere. <laughs> and, you know, for many of us, life is either one or the other. Sometimes we uh, are up. Sometimes we're down. The trials of life seem like a pile of manure, and we usually handle them like, whoa, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And we can't enjoy the good things because the trials seem to be coming. And we're up and down and up and down. And I know I'm speaking to all of you in this room. And uh, and some of you are, are overly pessimistic. Some of you are overly optimistic. But God, this doesn't take God by surprise. In fact, you are not the first people to ever go through this. In fact, uh, Peter, who was one of the apostles of Jesus, one of the twelve, in fact, probably the rose to the cream, uh, came to the top. He was a leader, type A, always out there, would speak and then think kind of thing. But yet he was the one that the Holy Spirit came upon and he stood up and preached. And man, thousands of lives were transformed by the, the power of God. And so he wrote a letter to a group of people. He wrote it around... 65 A.D. in that range. So you can say that's about 30 years after Jesus had died and ascended back to the Father. So 30 years of Christianity had taken place that first century. And uh, it wasn't always good. The Romans didn't like it. The, the, many of the Jewish religious leaders didn't like it. People got scattered all over the place. And so Peter writes a letter to Christians. They're first century Christians. They're, they would have been Greek or Gentile in their, in their uh, living, and they were scattered all over what is modern-day Turkey. And uh, they were going through some incredible manure times. They were tough times. They were struggling times. And uh, so Peter writes them to encourage them, and he writes this letter called First Peter, and we're going to be walking over it over the next uh, month and a half or so to see what is there. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to go with me to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and if you're new to the Bible, which I know many of you are, and, and uh, you may have brought a Bible, you brought your device, it's easy to find on the device, but if you're uh, just coming to the Scriptures, go to the end, go to maps, and then come in some. You got, uh, you're going to find it right after the book of James, 1 Peter is what we're going to be seeing. Uh, keep your Bibles open, I always encourage you to jot down notes, I believe God has something that's as relevant as a newspaper for you today. And so let's look at this. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this. To God's elect, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded or guarded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Let's stop there. Here's point number one that I want you to write down. You got to know who you are. You got to know who you are. These people are going through these difficult times, and we'll get to those difficult times in a moment. But Peter doesn't start with the difficult times. He starts with who they really are in Jesus Christ. You see, we find our so much of our meaning in life by what we do instead of who we are. And Peter is coming back. You've got to know your identity. And he is telling them your identity is in Jesus Christ. This is what God did for you in Jesus Christ. And he starts listing out some of those things that are there. He talks about that they are chosen people. In other words, they're a kingdom of people, not of this world. And he's trying to get across to them, listen, you're not going to fit in in this world. You're always going to have a little bit of the homesick blues because you know, because God's spirit lives inside of you, that you're not home yet. That this is a place, and and he's going to call them at different times in the book, he's going to call them foreigners. Some translations call them strangers and aliens. He's going to say, you just don't belong here. I don't know if you ever feel that sometimes. I, I do. I just feel like because of what Christ has done in my life, and I look at so many of the things that are going on around me, I pick up the paper, I see of a shooting, I see of somebody that has stepped off into abusing children or these kind of things, and I'm thinking, Lord, this just, I just don't fit here. And then that's what these people were feeling. And so what Peter does is he goes back and he starts talking to them about who they are. You're a kingdom people. You're not from here. You're strangers and aliens. But he goes on to explain where they are. You're in right standing with God now because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And His Spirit is sanctifying you, making you holy. You're cleansed from the penalty of sin. And you've been given the power to not walk in the power of sin. You're fully loved by God and He is full of mercy. And He has a priceless inheritance for you because you are sons and daughters of the King. And he just lays this out for them, who they are. And he, then, he, then he lets them know, and he's going to let them know even more. A day is coming. Listen, a day is finally going to come when the trials are no more. And God is going to set everything right through Jesus. These days are going to come. And so he lays out who they are, and you have to know who you are. Um, you know, it's always interesting when you have children... And uh, you that have had children or are raising children or whatever. And it's always kind of a badge of honor when somebody looks at your child and say, oh, I can see you in them. I can see you in their face or see you in their eyes when they're little and you're looking at them thinking, I don't see anything. And uh, then as they grow and they start to be in that environment around mom and dad a little more, I look at some of your kids and I'm thinking, I know who that kid belongs to. I, it doesn't take, take, take much. But as a parent, it's kind of a badge of honor. You're thinking, okay, your son looks like you or your daughter looks like uh, your wife. And, and, uh, and you, you kind of think, man, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. I mean, they're supposed to start to resemble us even more. And that's why, you know, as you live a life as parents, you're emulating something to your kids that you want them to follow and start to look like you even more. But they pick up your mannerism, hands in the pockets, or how they shuffle or, or what they say and, and these kind of things. How much more spiritually, in fact, the Apostle Paul said, he said, he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. How much more should we start to resemble Jesus Christ if his spirit abides within us? We are to resemble him. And that's where Peter is going on this by telling him who it is. This is your identity. 
And so let me say something to you just a moment, because I want this to sink in. You need to know who you are. And your identity is not set by something somebody told you as a child, that you were a mistake, that you were an accident, that you're lazy, that you're no good, you're a liar, whatever they may have put upon you. That is not who you are. Who you are is who God says you are. You are righteous. You are loved. You need to know that you are you're forgiven, that you're cleansed. And, and sometimes you're thinking, well, Mark, I just don't resemble that very much. Oh, but if you would just keep reminding yourself who you are in Christ, that He indwells you, that He is at work in you, that He is changing you, He's redeeming you more and more until that final day, then you will start to resemble more of Him. And that, so Peter is saying, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know who you are. Well, let's go on. Pick it up in, in verse 3. Uh, excuse me, in verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, that end is coming. So he, he is at work in you, but the end is coming. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Here's point two. You will always have trials. That doesn't sound too good, Mark. That doesn't make me feel good. You're going to always have trials. As long as you're in these earth suits, until we step out of here, you are going to have trials. But here's the good news. These trials have purpose. They're not purposelessness. Peter is saying to the people, listen, what God is doing, even in the midst of these trials, He's refining your faith. He is purifying your faith. And you're going to shine even brighter because of the trials that come upon you. And I know many of you are walking through trials. Some of you are walking through health issues. Some of you are walking through financial issues. Some of you are walking through depression, emotional struggles. Uh, you've got your children that are rebelling or somebody's walked away. Your spouse has said, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. I don't know what your trial may be today, but I'm telling you, God may not have caused that trial, but he can use that trial. He really can. And here's the deal about, about what Peter says here. He, he compares it to gold or precious metal. And you know how that works. You know, it, it doesn't just become a ring. Uh, the silver or the gold has to be dealt with. And, and there's two things that has to happen. One is a purification process. You know, the purification process, you take gold, you put it in the smelter or the hot, uh, hot fire, and what happens is, is the dross and the impurities start to come up. And trials are like the fire of life. What they do is they squeeze you, and when they squeeze you, what is really on the inside comes out. Now, I, don't, I know you don't like it sometimes. You're like a pimple sometimes, and what comes out, you don't want to come out. But it, but it needs to come out. And so what God is doing, He is purifying you with the heat of these trials. And what's happening is, is those things that don't resemble Him, He is starting to bring to the surface... And you've got to deal with them. You've got to, you've got to let that dross be taken aside. So there's the purification of the metals. But number two is there's the refining part of the fire. 
Purification is getting away the impurities. Refining is getting you usable. In other words, you take gold, you get the impurities out, then the refining process comes, now you can make a ring, now you can make jewelry. But here's what's interesting, is sometimes you have to put that back into the fire to heat it up to be usable again. So what is happening is, is that many of you, part of these stresses that you're having, you don't like the way you're responding, it's starting to show up things in your life you don't like, anger, bitterness, all these kind of things, and, and you're thinking, oh, Lord. And then what he's, ha- he's doing is he's taking the purification process, and then he's taking the refining process. He's getting you, you usable. Okay? I know you don't like trials. I wish I could stand up here and say, oh, you're never going to have a trial. No, you're either in a trial, you're coming out of a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. I, that's what I've discovered about life. Because we're not from here. There's going to be always this homesick blues that we're we're going with. And so Peter is saying, listen, you're like gold. You're being refined. And he wanted you to know who you were first. Here's another thing that uh, Peter makes the comment here. He said, the day is coming with the end of your faith. The salvation of your souls is coming. And these trials will be no more at that time. In fact, he goes on in verse 10 a little bit farther, that prophet and angels even awaited for this day. When Jesus would come. So we, we see this. Uh, James Stockdale, who was one of the first POWs in the Vietnam conflict. He was a pilot and he was put early years of the Vietnam conflict. He was, he was a POW. And uh, when they took him in, he eventually lived. He lived through the whole war. He was eventually released. And they were interviewing him because he came out sane, he came out whole, he came out in his right mind, whereas many did not. And uh, they asked him, why is it that you made it? And what was it in the POW experience that you saw of guys that didn't make it? He said, the guys that usually didn't make it are those that were overly optimistic. In other words, we'll be out by Christmas, or we'll be out by this. Or, or, you know, these, these things are not happening, really. They were so optimistic that they took their eyes off of reality. He said those guys were always controlled by their circumstances. They were either high or they were either low, and eventually they broke completely and they didn't make it. He said, but the guys that made it, in fact, this has become known as the Stockdale Paradox. He said the guys that made it, are those, yes, we're optimistic of that this isn't going to go on forever, but yet we don't bury our head in the sand to the trials that we're actually facing now. Now, here's where I'm going with that Stockdale paradox. Some people are living today with their head buried in the sand that things aren't really bad. That someday it's just going to all be better and I'm going to go to heaven and all of this will be over with. Listen, I, I, I want to go to heaven too. And there's days I just don't fit in and I'm ready to punch my ticket. But yet, as long as God got you here in the midst of these trials, he wants to use you in the midst of them. Don't check out early. Don't be so heavenly minded you're no earthly good. Peter is saying these trials are going to come. But there's an ending point to them. But in the meantime, you're going to be used in the midst of this. Okay? Let's go on. I want to pick it up in verse 13. 
It says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Those are two great word pictures. And, and, and I, I, I think these pictures are great to see. They're a picture of the Middle Eastern man who has his robe. And Barney Fife, I'm an Andy Griffith fan. Barney Fife used to say, gird your loins, buster. And that's exactly what it is. They would take their robe, they would put it up into their belt so they were movable. They could run and do those kind of things. And that's what he's saying. Set yourself for action. And I think he's saying this too, and I don't want to read in the Scripture something that's not there, but don't whine about it. How many of us are walking through trials and we're whining all the time? And I think Peter is saying, gird your loins. Be sober and alert here. And then he goes on to say, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed as his, at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, and then look what He says, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Let me stop there just a second. The third point I want you to write down is this. You must live your life out of who you are. You must live your life out of who you are. And here's what I mean by that. You, li- you don't act a particular way just because you call yourself a Christian. You live your life out of the identity you have and who Jesus Christ is and who He is in you. He is making something out of you. He's making something beautiful out of you. He's making a masterpiece out of you. So we live our life out of that instead of just acting a particular role. Now, out of that, Peter says there's two things that are going to show your life. Number one is this. You are to be holy. You are to be holy. You are to be holy. Now, we think, what does that mean? I mean, we call God holy. We call holy Bible. They used to call marriage holy matrimony. What does it mean to be holy? Well, the word literally means to be set apart. The reason God is holy is there's no other God. He is the only God. So he is holy. He is set apart. And then he says, we are to be holy. Now, what does that mean? That means we are to be set apart because we are different. We are sons and daughters of the king. We have been born again. We have have come to God through faith and we have been brought into his kingdom, into his family. So we are set apart, so our lives ought to reflect that kingdom in the way we live. Okay? What gets us in problems as Christ followers is when we want to live just like the world, and we're not set apart. The world says, forget that. I don't want to be a part of that. And so Peter comes along and says, listen, we ought to live our lives as holy, as different, set apart, morally pure, in how we live our lives, and with integrity, how we handle relationships, how we handle the different things we deal with, we are to be holy as He is holy. Separate, set apart, prepared for God's use. Uh, Andrew Murray is one of my favorite authors to read. I read dead guys a lot. He died in the early 1900s. He ministered in South Africa. And one of the illustrations I remember that uh, Andrew Murray used to use, he said, he said, imagine you're a cup that you put tea or coffee in. He said, you grab that cup, you grab your tea or your coffee, and you're going to put it into the cup, which the cup is meant to uh, drink from. But you look in there and there's ink and there's other kinds of 
stuff in there that make it unusable. So what do you do? You clean the cup up and then you're able to put the tea or the coffee in. He said, many of us are living our lives uh, as cups, as utensils to be used by God. But we have these impurities inside of us that we can't be used. And so we want to be set apart. We want to be holy and usable of the Lord. There was a there was a town they were building a dam and they told these people in the town that when the dam is finished construction, that eventually this small town is going to um, be flooded because we will dam up the river. It will just flood out your town completely. You will have to relocate at that point. What happened, though, is that it took several years to build the dam. And they went back to the people and they noticed in the, in the, in the midst of those years that the town had become dilapidated. It had become run down. They didn't take care of it at all. And they asked somebody, why has the town come this way? And they said this, where there is no hope in the future, there is no work in the present. Where there is no hope in the future, there is no work in the present. This people, that Peter was talking to, that were going through trials, if they did not have a living hope for a future, they would have not taken care of the now. And we have to be careful about thinking about heaven so much that we're not living out Christ's life in the present. So live holy. Now, the second thing he, he talks about, pick it up in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your, fe- your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. See, he calls them foreigners. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that were you redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now look at verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. He says this, literally, it's put on display. Let your love be for one another deeply. So if we're going to live out of who we are, first of all, we're going to live holy. Secondly, we're going to love deeply. We're going to love others. It's going to be on display. It's going to be our billboard. As Christ followers, it's going to be our calling card. When they look at us, what sets us apart? What sets us apart is that, you know, they love crazy, man. They love. In fact, it was said of the first century Christians that what baffled the Romans the most was how that the Christians loved one another. And that's what Peter is coming back to. Live holy, but love deeply. Love deeply. This is what sets us apart. Sadly today, that it is not the love of Christians that gets the attention of the world, but it's our hatred of the world that often gets people's attention. Negatively, Peter is saying, let your love be deep. Let your love be for one another. Let it be on display. Let Christ, this is my terminology, we need to be grace dispensers. 
We need to be the ones that are giving that living hope to other people. Is the way we need to be living. You know, one of the best ways we can love people, and I know this is difficult, but I'm going to say it, is to forgive them. Jesus showed his ultimate love for us by his forgiveness of us. Maybe. I think that there are many people today that I know that are carrying a heavy yoke, and it's a heavy yoke. And they're trying to do their life. And that yoke is past experiences, past people, other people that have offended them. And they're carrying them. Their life is so weighted down. Maybe the best way we can love somebody is to let them go and forgive them. That's not easy. During the um, Blitz in World War II, when London was getting regularly bombed, that uh, they said that there were many... Orphans, many children who lost their parents and became orphans, not only did they lose their family, but they lost any kind of hope for the future. They would gather up these children that had lost everything. They would bring them into commons area to take care of them. And they would notice that when it came time to eat, these kids would just gorge. But when it came time for bed, they would just lay there restless and crying through the night. They tried to figure out what was going on, and then somebody had the thought, you know, these children have lost everything. They have no hope. Perhaps when they go to bed at night, we'll give each of them a piece of bread. And so when each child went to bed at night, they gave them a piece of bread, and they slept through the night knowing they had something for the next day. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, maybe, just maybe, as we love people deeply, We give them living hope. We give them bread for the next day. So Peter says we need to live out of who we are. We need to live holy, love deeply. I'm wrapping up. Here's here's what I have for you. Do you know who you are? Do you know whose you are? Do you know that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus Christ? Do you know you're redeemed? You're forgiven? You're set free from the penalty of sin? You're set free from the power of sin if you're willing to walk with Him through the power of His Holy Spirit. He cares deeply for you. He calls you beloved. He didn't call you a mistake. He didn't call you a loser. He calls you His beloved. He calls you His beloved son. He calls you His beloved daughter. But what identity are you living out of? What you do? What people say about you, what your Facebook likes are, what your Instagram likes are. Is that your identity? I hope not, because you're going to live in a lose, lose situation with that. You need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know your hope is in Christ. What I love about his scriptures in Romans 10, it says that if we uh, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. He is Lord of all. Are you willing to take that faith step with him? So my question, first of all, is what identity are you living out of? And second of all, are your trials controlling you or are they defining and refining you? We all go through them, but how do we respond? And then thirdly, are you living holy and loving deeply? I end with a story. There was a missionary by the name of Oswald Golter 
In the 1940s, he was a missionary in China, but the world's unrest, they called him home. And on his way out of China home, he stopped in India. And while he was in India, he was wandering around before he would catch his ship home. And he came across some Jewish refugees. They had run out of Germany with all of the World War II conflict that was uh, going on, all the conflict there. They had relocated in India, and he found them. And it happened to be around Christmas time, and he found this group of refugees. And they were Jewish, but he asked them, what would you like for Christmas? And they said, oh, we're Jews. We don't celebrate Christmas. And he said, I do. Well, what would you like? And some of them started reminiscing. And they talked about these certain pastries that they had back in Germany. And they would love to have those and, and this kind of thing. And, and so what uh, Golter did is he sold his ticket that it was going to take him back home. And he used it to go find a bakery that made these kind of pastries. And it brought him back to all these Jewish refugees. Golter finally got home, and, and he was eventually re, retelling this story to a group of students and pastors. And eventually one of them raised their hand and they said to this, why did you do that? They weren't Christians. They don't believe in Jesus. And Golter sighed and he said, I know, but I do. In other words, his life was to reflect Jesus to others, despite what the other person believed. I think this is our challenge for us as we're going to walk through 1 Peter together. 